Support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navara Media from just £1 a month. Head to navara.media forward slash support. My name is Richard Hames and you're listening to Navara FM. This is the second episode of a special series on Navara FM, focused on the topic of class. For a long time, it was a common idea on the left that class was the only major division of the world that leftists should think about. Although those days are mercifully largely behind us, the exact way that class intersects with the other ways in which people are divided up in the world, like race and gender, is still widely discussed. Kenan Malik is a writer whose work has covered an enormous terrain, from the philosophy of biology through to contemporary theories of multiculturalism, pluralism and race. And his recent work is no less expansive, culminating in his book Not So Black and White. In this episode of Navarra FM, hosted by cultural critic Juliet Jakes and writer and editor John Merrick, Kenan takes us on a history tour to explain the relationship between race and class distinguishing between the radical and the liberal enlightenments as he does so. He argues that in history, class divisions are not cleanly separated out from racial ones, but are interwoven together to justify systems of brutality. But he is not just focused on the past. Malik points to a seeming paradox of contemporary society, in which racism is widely abhorred, and yet there seems an ever greater urge to put people into specific racial categories. How did we get here? And how did the catch-all category of culture come to replace both race and class as common ways to understand the divisions of society? Hello, I'm John Merrick. And I'm Juliet Jakes. And you're listening to Navara FM. Our guest this week is Kenan Malik, who is a, a writer, a lecturer, broadcaster and observer columnist. His previous books include Quest for a Moral Compass and From Fatwa to Jihad. And we interviewed him about his current book, which came out at the start of this year, Not So Black and White. And the book is a a history of identity politics and how, in a sense, identity politics came to kind of dominate the political imaginary of both the left and the right. Obviously, this series is about class and we're thinking through questions of class and what class means and how do we think about class on the left. And I think one of the reasons we wanted to talk to to someone like Kenan is that in some respects, identity politics has come to, if not replace questions of class, has come to dominate discussion of class and class discourse in Britain and in America especially. I think it's worth pointing out that Kenan focuses specifically on identity politics around race and racism and different approaches to anti-racism. And you know, one of the things that particularly interested me about the book, and indeed it's where we start, is Kennan's approach to the Enlightenment and pulling out these radical and liberal Enlightenment traditions, a sort of liberal tradition that comes with the American Declaration of Independence and the French Declaration of the Rights of Man, which basically guarantee equality for the wealthy, the propertied, and for white people, but not for uh, not for slaves. And Kenan and I talk a bit about the Haitian Revolution in the interview and how that became a sort of lightning rod for a radical 
enlightenment that was based on emancipation for everyone and initiated 200 years plus of political solidarity between class liberation movements and racial liberation movements. So Kennan's first answer in this interview covers a lot of that history and as a result it's quite long uh, but I think it's really worth listening to because it sets up a very complicated and I think quite provocative thesis around a kind of divide and rule politics that has been practiced over the last again 200 years or so that has encouraged the separation of class politics and racial politics. The book itself is a great distillation of 300 years of intellectual history and a really compelling narrative of how we got to a particular political moment that we have today in both America and in Britain. And I think the discussion that we have is a really productive one, really productive one for people on the contemporary left um, and their kind of struggles to think through questions of identity and questions of class. Thanks for joining us today, Kenan. Pleasure. So, you know, you've written about kind of race for a long time now. Um, you know, you've written kind of previous books, your book on the kind of Rushdie affair, as well as kind of your your weekly columns for the Observer and other places as well. What do you think has kind of changed that makes this new book of yours so relevant? Why did you feel the need to kind of go back and write this book now at this particular moment? Well, the world has changed. And in many ways, I've learned a lot more. So it's, it's the, those two things coming together. But I've also become more aware of a paradox of contemporary societies, which is that on the one hand, in most societies, there is a moral abhorrence of racism, albeit that in most, racism still disfigures the lives of, of, of many. At the same time, in all these societies, there is a, a tendency to put people into racial or ethnic boxes, a, a, a kind of grasping of identitarianism in that sense, uh, to put people into racial and ethnic boxes, to define their needs and aspirations and so on by the boxes in which they have been put. Th that paradox lies at the heart of the book, and the book is, in a way, uh, an attempt to unpack Relook at, at this at this issue, and to do so by not just looking at where we are, but how we've got here, and so I tell that history. So we, are, in a sense, the politics of identity is it's like the ghost that runs through the book. Um, but I only really come to it at, at the very end that, that most of the book is 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 not about that at all. But I think you have to tell that story, two stories in a sense. The story of the idea of race and the story of the struggle against racism and to transcend racial categorization and how those two intersect because it is in that intersection that the, the idea of race and of the struggle to overcome it. I think that it is un in understanding the history of that intersection that we come to understand where we are today. Thanks. Um, I'm really interested in your engagement with the Enlightenment and with the cultural and political uses of the Enlightenment uh, in the 200 or 250 years since the two great revolutions of the Enlightenment, the American Declaration of Independence in 1776 and the French Revolution of 1789. Uh, in the book, you talk about how both of these historical moments produced constitutions that guaranteed equality for all, but in practice really guaranteed equality and rights for 
property people, landowners, slaveholders, the upper and middle classes. And in that, you then look at uh, the Haitian Revolution of the early 19th century, uh, Toussaint Louverture and, and others who... The late 18th century. Late 18th century into the early 19th, I think. Yes, 1804 is when Haiti formally got its independence. Yeah, so the struggle for Haitian independence and the revolution there, and the ways in which the movers behind what became Haitian independence took these emissions from the French Declaration of of Equal Rights. And this produced two strands, a sort of radical enlightenment and more liberal enlightenment. And I think in those is the basis of a lot of contemporary Western politics more generally, but particularly politics of, of race. So can we talk a bit more about how the enlightenment produce these different approaches to class and race-based politics, and maybe what, in the 19th century, solidified into these different uh, traditions. There's obviously a a major debate about the Enlightenment, uh, what it means, its legacy, and so on. And there's probably no period of history that has been so debated, grasped upon, and disparaged than the Enlightenment. But it seems to me that, that in much of the debate, there are two issues... That, that, that people fail to understand. There's a tendency to look on the Enlightenment as a singular blob, when in fact it was rent with division and contradiction. And secondly, there's a tendency to look at the Enlightenment and the ideas that flowed out of it as a purely European phenomenon, when one of the arguments I try and make in the book is that it is the struggles of, of colonial peoples and those denied equality within Europe women, uh, working class, gays, and so on, um, against European rule or, 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 or the elite that help give meaning to ideas of equality and universalism. So if we go back to, to that first thing about the, the Enlightenment not being a singular blob. One of the key divisions within the Enlightenment was something you've raised, which was the division between the moderates and the radicals. So the moderate enlightenment is the enlightenment about which most historians have written, the figures whom we're mo- most familiar with, people like Locke and Hume and Voltaire and Kant, Jefferson and so on. And most of them were committed to ideas of equality, of universality of human beings, um, which was something relatively new, those kinds of ideas. Had a, have a long prehistory, of course, particularly within uh, the monotheistic faiths, um, particularly within Christianity. But they acquired a much sharper edge and became much more embedded, socially embedded, out of the Enlightenment. So on the one hand, the, that mainstream Enlightenment figures argued for equality, for universality. But at the same time, they limited the peoples to whom equality and universality applied. So, for instance, when, after 1789, after the French Revolution, the National Assembly voted not to apply the Declaration of the Rights of Man to the French colonies in order to protect slavery, essentially. Um, So the moderate Enlightenment were, were happy to accommodate colonialism, racism, um, and slavery within uh, the, the, their notion of equality and, and universality. You then had the radical enlightenment, figures um, of whom most people are less aware, people like Diderot, Dolbach, Spinoza, who were intransigently opposed to 
racism, colonialism, the growth of inequality. And what you see in that division is kind of two kinds of divisions that run through subsequent history. The first is the gap between an abstract belief in equality and the reality of a deeply unequal society. This between abstract beliefs and social practice, if you like. And it is out of that gap that the modern idea of race emerges. When I say race is modern, what I mean is it's not that people did not uh, believe in the subhumanity of certain groups, didn't discriminate against groups, didn't label human groups prior to modernity. Clearly, they did. It was central to their, to their social conscience. But that, paradoxically, is why modern notions of races are completely different, because the notion of racial equality, or the notion of racial inequality, I should say, only makes sense in a world that has accepted the ideas of equality and human universality. The kinds of divisions that exist um, in the 19th century, many of them existed prior to modernity, but, but they didn't have to be justified because that was natural. That was how the world was. But in the post-enlightened world, they had to be justified because these were societies that proclaimed a fidelity to equality and universality, the, the American Declaration of, 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 of Independence, the, the French Declaration of the Rights of Man, and so on. Race became a means of bridging that chasm because people came to think of um, certain groups as undeserving of equality or of uh, being treated um, as part of the, a universal human family because they were naturally inferior. So, for instance, African-Americans, the ancestors of today's African-Americans weren't enslaved because they were black. They were deemed to be black and an inferior race as a justification for, for slavery in a society that had declared all humans to be equal. And that was true right across the board. So now we think about racism in the contemporary world in terms of skin colour or continent of origin, so we talk about blacks, whites, Asians, and so on. But that was not how 19th century thinkers saw race. They certainly saw blacks, whites, Asians as, as, as distinct races. But they also saw the working class as a distinct race, because not only did they have to, to, to explain, justify why African-Americans were enslaved, they also had to explain why um, the working class were treated as it was. So it's very difficult to, to, to comprehend now, but they saw work, you know, factory workers, farmhands, as being anthropologically inferior, as being racially inferior, in the same way as many now see the distinction between blacks and whites. They saw it in exactly the same way. Sociologists developed elaborate theories which showed how class divisions were originally race divisions, and they eventually became seen as class divisions. Um, but but they are, at, at the root, they, were, they are race divisions. So in that sense, the, that's one of those problems, um, that, that one of those, the, the divisions that arise out of not so much the Enlightenment as nascent capitalism, which is the, the gap between 
a abstract belief in equality and the social practices of inequality and race emerges out of that. The second distinction I was talking about before was the ideas of the Enlightenment, which we see purely as European, those hostile to the Enlightenment, those who appreciate the Enlightenment, both of them see, see it in this way. You know, for one, it is an expression of the greatness of Europe. For the other, it's the expression of, of the fact that out of this comes racism and colonialism, the taintedness of European ideas. But both of them see it essentially as uh, a European phenomenon. And in, in large respect, it was a European phenomenon. But the point I think that's important is that the meaning of equality and universality only um, becomes uh, properly understood. On, only uh, that, that, it, it's only the, the, those concepts are only given meaning in the struggles of um, both colonial peoples against um, enslavement and subjugation, and the struggles within Europe of the working class of women and so on against the restrictions of equality that, that, that were placed upon them. Now, you mentioned, you know, the two great revolutions of the Enlightenment, the American and, and the French. Now, in, in, you know, we, in, in all our cultures, those are the two great revolutions of, of the Enlightenment, and, and they have a place in our culture. Rightly, they have a place in our culture that's important. But what's always forgotten is that the third great um, revolution of the Enlightenment, again, which you mentioned, which is the Haitian Revolution, which is as important as the revolutions of the French revolutions and the American revolutions, because it is out of the Haitian revolution, the, the, the ideas of universality and equality that, that, that were at the heart of the, the radical enlightenment, in a, in a sense, that was, that was where it first bore fruit. Because as, as I, I think I, I said before, um, the, the French revolutionaries after 1789 refused to extend the Declaration of Rights of Man to the, to the colonies. The slaves on Saint-Domingue, which then was the uh, French colony, then the wealthiest colony in the world because of it, the sugar plantations built on slavery. Slaves revolted in 1791, initially to reform um, the slave system, but through a 12-year period, the struggle to reform slavery became a struggle to abolish slavery, became a struggle for national independence. And in 1804, um, January 1st, 1804, Haiti was born as, as an independent nation. And it was that struggle that forced France to abolish slavery, first in Saint-Domingue and then throughout its colonies. So in a sense, what the enslaved of Saint-Domingue did was force French Revolution to take seriously their own ideals. One of the interesting things about the way we think about it, the Haitian Revolution, or historians think about the Haitian Revolutions, is that the early writers about Haiti, and I'm thinking here of people like C.L.R. James with his, you know, with with, with um, uh, his book on the Black Jacobins, which is kind of the, you know, for me, it's my favourite book, a book on historical book, a wonderful book which marries together a, a kind of novelistic view of, of the struggle with a deeply evidenced uh, argument about what happened with a polemic about 
equality and, 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 and the struggles of the oppressed. And marries all those, those three things together beautifully in, in, in a wonderful book. For C.L.R. James, a key feature of the, um, of, of, the revolution, of the Haitian Revolution was the French Revolution, that the French Revolution and the Enlightenment gave it its intellectual edge, if you like. More recent historians have tended to downplay that and to talk more about the cultures from which slaves have been snatched, um, the religion, either Catholicism, uh, Toussaint Louverture, the leader of, 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 of the uh, revolution, was, was a Catholic, um, a former slave, uh, embraced Catholicism, or voodoo, which was kind of an amalgam of African spirituality and um, French spirituality or, 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 or um, Christian spirituality. And, and part of that is because we uncovered new evidence, We've uncovered new archives, so, so we have a fuller picture of the, of, of, of the revolution. But partly it's also because we've become more disenchanted with the, with the Enlightenment. So a, a lot of it is, a, is, is about downplaying the importance of the Enlightenment. And it seems to me that C.L.R. James's account stands, still stands up well, that, that the importance of the ideas that flowed out of the Enlightenment for uh, for equality and universality, played an important part um, in the Haitian Revolution. And the Haitian Revolution then played an important part in subsequent anti-colonial movements. It was an embodiment of the way that Europe could be challenged and the way that colonial peoples could, be, could win their struggles. So that's hugely important. So what we're talking about, really, are two traditions of universalism that come out of the, the Enlightenment and which kind of shape subsequent debates about racism and colonialism, the liberal universalist tradition and the radical universalist tradition. The liberal universalist tradition, which was quite happy to live with colonialism and racism, and, and the radical universalist tradition, we challenged that. I mean, a very good example of that is the response of liberals and radicals to what is now called the Indian Mutiny, 1857, which was the first nationalist interaction in, in, in India against British rule. So on the one hand, you had someone like John Stuart Mill, you know, the lodestone of Victorian liberalism, whose book on liberty is rightly still lauded as, as, as hugely important in developing um, the ideas of liberalism. But he was also a supporter of colonialism. He, he was an employee of the East India Company, which at that time governed India. And after the, uh, the, the mutiny, he wrote for Parliament a, a long memorandum, which listed all the benefits, as he saw it, that the East India Company had brought to India. And on the other side stood working-class radicals. Chartism as a movement that had just about died by then, but its spirits have lived on. And the People's Paper, a very important working-class radical newspaper, embodied that kind of spirit of Chartism. And in editorial after editorial, the People's Paper argued that what it called the revolt of Hindustan was no different from the revolt of the Poles against 
uh, the Russians or the Hungarians against the Austrians. That, that is no different from any European struggles for freedom. And just as Britons had supported Poles against Russia and Hungarians against Austria, so they should support Indians against Britain. And so you can see there the, the, the kind of the difference between a universalist perspective um, uh, from a liberal viewpoint, which says that um, universalism is good, equality is good, but only for civilised peoples, uh, or what they de define as civilised peoples, and a radical position which says that um, equality and universality are not the privileges of the civilised elite. It is They are the property of all and should be seen as the property of all, and that's the basis on which we... We, we, we will fight our struggles. And those two, and those two um, traditions um, carry on, and, and in some ways we're still having that debate today. I mean, there's so much there that I want to kind of tease out, and I think one of the things particularly is this, you know, around the same time as the, the Indian Mutiny of 1857, there was also the few years later, I think, the Morant Bay and the kind of crushing of that in Jamaica, this is an uprising in Jamaica that was kind of brutally crushed. And you quote in the book kind of a fascinating instance of, I think it's sailors in, in Southampton who, you know, rise up in kind of uh, against a, um, a celebration of the governor, right, who crushed the, crushed the rebellion kind of brutally. Thousands, hundreds or thousands died in this. And there's a local paper that says, you know, these are you know, I can't remember the exact words they use, but these are black people revolting on our doorstep, except they're not black, they're working class people. You know, it, they really did see, you know, as you were saying, this kind of anthropological view of class, really did see as them as kind of racially distinct. I think it's something to kind of, you know, I'm going to ask you about, about later and kind of tease out a bit more, but I want to go back to particularly thinking about this kind of enlightenment, the question of the enlightenment, because it's not, you know, you say that you know, there's, um, you know, there's something kind of lost in this kind of forgetting of the kind of Enlightenment tradition, the radical Enlightenment tr tradition, but it also kind of spawned its, its opposite as well, you know, the reaction to this. There's a figure that you talk about that kind of comes up at the start of your book and kind of, you know, wends its way throughout the whole narrative, which is Herder. You know, Herder was a student of Kant, Kant's favourite student, um, you know, Kant being the kind of father of the Enlightenment, intellectually at least, in Germany. And when Heard is now spoken of, he tends to be, you know, it's, it, people say he's the kind of father of modern nationalism, basically. It's, it's all you really hear about him. You, you also say, which is, is right, but he, he was also a, a kind of cultural pluralist as well. He's also at the heart of the kind of what people would see as a kind of almost anti-nationalist tradition of kind of, you know, what we could say now is identity politics, right? I, I wonder if you could kind of talk about how, you know, how did the kind of Enlightenment spawn its kind of perverse, kind of bitter fruits of the Enlightenment came, came, came into this kind of nationalist politics particularly? Yeah, it's best to see Herder not as a purely Enlightenment figure, but he straddled the, the Enlightenment and post-Enlightenment world. And in many ways, he, he, he expresses romantic ideas, particularly of culture. And for me, the importance of Herder is not in relation to nationalism, though there are, there are strands of nationalism which draw on his ideas, but in relation to concepts of culture. And his concept of culture still shapes much of the way we think about culture today. So Herder thought um, that any people or nation or folk was defined by their culture, their history and heritage and culture, and that um, he, this, this was a, a, a kind of fixed thing that ran through their history. 
um, and that every people had its own culture and that to be authentically of that people, you had to be authentically of that culture and to live that culture. So, for instance, um, language was very important to him. He believed that um, it was impossible to adequately learn a foreign language because language was so entwined with one's own culture that, you know, he says he could, he could he wrote, write a letter um, back home from when he visited France said, I can only stammer my French because I cannot understand it. And so there's a kind of essentialist notion of what culture is. But at the same time, he was a, a great defender of, e of equality. He was a great opponent of slavery. Part of the reason he was hostile to, to, to Kant was because Kant developed certain ideas about uh, certain racial theories, um, which Herder deeply opposed. So in that sense, there's a kind of ambiguity. And so that ambiguity, that, that is crucially important because it's an ambiguity that still lives on today. An ambiguity between a defense of equality and a, pluralism, a form of pluralism which can take on all forms of regressive ideas. So, for instance, Herder uh, was hostile to migration because, uh, in his view, that, that migration mixed up cultures. He was opposed even to mixed marriages, what he called mixed marriages, because that was, um, again, undermined cultural purity. So out of him comes both the idea of cultural pluralism which is, which is often central to contemporary anti-racism, and the idea of cultural and racial purity. Because the, once you hold that a, a people is defined by a particular essence, it is just another step to see that essence in racial terms and to see race then as the way of defining peoples. And his ideas flowed into um, racial thinking in the, in, in the 19th century. It became appropriated by Nazis in, in, in the 20th because of his ideas of cultural purity. He was no anti-Semite, but he had his notion of what Jews were, were that Jews were valuable and important in their own culture. That is, they had a particular history, which was in what we now call Palestine, and that that's where the history comes from. That's where the rootedness is. And that in Europe, they are aliens. And you can see how that appealed to um, racists and, and, and Nazis later, um, the, the ideas of cultural purity. So yes, the, 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 the ideas of both pure, cultural purity and cultural pluralism come out of that. And it's an ambiguity that, that still shapes the way we think of culture today. In the post-war world, in the wake of Nazism and the Holocaust, the old ideas of racial differences, um, biological racial differences that had been absolutely predominant in the pre-war world, became less plausible. It became more difficult to, 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 to pursue those ideas. And culture came to be the medium through which we, we came to understand human differences. So it's when you know, ideas of cultural pluralism, of, of uh, ethnic pluralism, of multiculturalism, all, all, all these ideas develop. But culture, in a sense, became, was func became functionally equivalent to that of race. 
in a sense that we came to see culture in almost essentialist fashion. We talk about black people, both as a race and as a culture. And somehow, if you're black, you have a black culture. Similarly, a, a lot of discussion now about white cultures and, 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 and indigenous white people of Europe and, and, and their culture and their culture being destroyed by immigration. It, all those kinds of essentialist ideas. Uh, but these ideas aren't just a property of the far right. I mean, they're part of the mainstream too. You know, a lot of discussion about cultural appropriation, for instance. Um, much of the discussion we have about cross-racial adoption. All, those, all these ideas... All, all these discussions embody with them, embodying them a kind of Herderian, romantic, essentialist view of culture. The first half of the book, or you know, it's you know, you, you build this kind of historical argument up. In the second half, you know, you you move more toward into the twentieth century. You move into kind of the development of discussion of race and kind of reality of race in the twentieth century and leading up to kind of the present. I think when people think of you know the position of you know racism and anti-racism today. You know, in many ways, we're in, in a fairly good place. You know, the formal kind of barriers and hierarchies of, you know, there's no, um, you know, the formalised systems and the formalised hierarchies are no longer existent. You know, it's the kind of housing barriers and everything else that would formally kind of separate kind of uh, black people, white people, Asian people, they, for the most part, broken down. At the same time, you know, people like Angela Davis and Frantz Fanon are kind of common currency on the kind of activist left. And they're kind of, you know, endlessly um, kind of invoked. Um, but this is, you, you kind of argue this has become kind of a rarefied form of, of kind of discussion of race and racism, is that right? You know, in a sense, because these kind of formal barriers are broken down, something's happened to this kind of cultural idea of race and racism. You know, could, could you kind of sketch that kind of argument out for us? Yeah, uh, what I'm really talking about is that what I call the rise of social pessimism, which has shaped the way we understand race, racism, and, 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 and racial differences and interrelations between what we call races. Another way of talking about it is identity politics. Um, I mean, there have always been identitarian strains within anti-racist, anti-colonial movements. So we had the back, there were back to Africa movements in the 19th century, particularly 19th century America. Um, Garveyism, uh, Pan-Africanism, um, Negritude. So the, the, all, the, all these movements have, have always existed. But in the main, these movements were relatively marginal. I mean, there were moments in which um, they acquired great resonance. Garveyism in, around the First World War, for instance. Pan-Africanism around the Second World War. But it's only in the post-war years and and especially in the, in the past 30, 40 years, that they've become the dominant strain, or dominant strands of, of, of anti-racist thinking. And it seems to me there are a number of reasons for that. The first is what we were talking about earlier, which is the gap between that abstract belief in equality and the, and the reality of a, of a deeply unequal world shaped by racism and colonialism. And many people started asking themselves, what worth are the ideas of Europe that come out of Europe? If at best they'd failed to prevent the subjugation of half the world, at worst they, they, were, they were complicit in allowing, permitting that subjugation, what worth were the, were the, were the ideas of, of Europe? And many started arguing um, 
that the ideas of Europe, given by a particular history, culture, uh, and set of power relationships, and colonial peoples had to develop their own, based on their own history and their own culture and their own needs and aspirations. And this became eventually, and these are the ideas at the heart of negritude and the heart of Garveyism, for instance. And these ideas, in a sense, laid the framework for what we now call the politics of identity, of, of, of um, oppressed peoples creating their own struggles out of their own particular needs and um, aspirations uh, and cultures. The second issue is that of culture. Again, we've talked about this. As culture became the medium through which we began to understand human differences, social differences. So it came to replace race, but it also came to replace class in in the post-war years. The essentialist character of culture um, as it develops in the the post-war years meant that for for many people, their struggles were, were... were shaped by the specific cultures of their group. So in in the 1960s, many black radicals would say that we need to get rid of white thought from our systems. We, 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 We need to root our struggles within black culture, within black needs, black aspirations. That was also important, but but the most important um, issue, I think, is what I'd call social pessimism. A radical universalist perspective requires that we believe in social change, in radical social change, that that is possible, that it is possible to overcome the the divisions within society, across between the, the groups that are fighting for social change. And that sense of being able to do so has ebbed away in the last 40, 50 years for, for a variety of reasons, from the, the breakdown, the, the, um, the loss of influence uh, of radical social movements, of working class movements, the erosion of the power of working class organisations, of trade unions, and the greater atomization of society, and so on. All, all these things have, have, have played a role in that. And we, we're much less able to think about radical revolutionary social change. And as the possibilities of such change has ebbed away, so people have quite naturally hunkered down, have clung more fiercely to their own identities, um, to the boxes into, into which they, they find themselves. And then those boxes become the means more and more to look at the world. And so, 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 so in a sense, there's a kind of vicious circle that applies here. That whole process has shaped the politics of what we could now call the politics of identity. If you go back to the 1930s, you take a figure like C.L.R. James. He was both a Trotskyist and a Pan-Africanist. Now, that might seem a strange place to be because Trotskyism is rooted in uh, the ideas of class struggle. Pan-Africanism is rooted in the idea of of some kind of essential quality that all uh, black people, or or, or Africans at least, possess. 
And in a sense, what Pan-Africanism in the 1930s expressed was a stitching together of two different outlooks. There was, on the one hand, anti-capitalist views, people like James or Padmore, those kinds of figures, for whom Pan-Africanism meant not an essential, essential argument about blackness, but an argument about um, the need to... to uh, challenge the colonialists, um, um, uh, not just in Africa, but across the world. For them, the struggle would be, could be as much about black against black as it could be about black against white or European against African. And then you had the, the, the more essentialist strands of pan-Africanism, uh, which saw that all Africans had a set of common interests, a common identity and a common purpose. And that was for them um, the root of the struggles for the peoples of Africa. Now, in the 1930s, the strength of anti-capitalist movements, the strength of labour movements, the strength of the left was able to, to, to create an uneasy alliance between those two viewpoints. By the 1960s, that had become much weaker. So that you mentioned Angela Davis, you can talk about Black Panthers, a whole host of, of, of radical African-Americans um, struggling as part of the Black Power movement. They were, on the one hand, committed to a form of class politics, but on the other hand, they found it difficult to see how to build a class politics when they felt that racism ran so deep in American society that it was almost impossible to bring white workers on board and to build that kind of common coalition. And so what that did was, was give far greater purchase to the essentialist arguments, um, the conservative essentialist arguments um, with, within the movement. And in the 40, 50 years since the 60s uh, Black Power movements, that unstitching of, on the one hand, the anti-capitalist movements and, the, on the other hand, the, 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 the essentialist movements, um, has gone much further. It's become much more difficult for many people to see the possibilities of building a class movement against subjugation, oppression, um, against, against the problems that we face. A good way of thinking about this is a figure like Derek Bell. Now, Derek Bell is a hugely important figure, but one that virtually nobody knows about. But he's hugely influential. I mean, um, everyone from Michelle Alexander to Barack Obama have cited him as being influential in, in, in their viewpoint. Derek Bell was a legal scholar um, in the second half of the, of, of the 20th century, someone who played a, a, an important part in the legal struggles to desegregate the South um, during the civil rights movement and an important uh, figure in what came to be what is now called critical race theory, which began as a movement within legal studies. And for Bell, he came to be deeply pessimistic about the possibilities of eradicating racism. He saw racism as ineradicable, as something permanent, that black people would never win equality. And to imagine that they would, would was to do themselves great harm, emotional um, harm. Now, subsequent thinkers have, 
have not gone as far down that kind of existential pit of despair, if you like, as, as Bell had. But, but that pessimism has come to shape them. So a figure like um, Tanahisi Coates, who is perhaps the most influential African-American um, uh, essayist of, of, of today, who um, uh, is, is been likened to James Baldwin. He writes that racism is like a natural disaster. He, 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 that, that, that's the analogy he draws, like, like um, an earthquake or a typhoon. And he says, just as neither laws nor social movements can stop typhoons or earthquakes, neither can they stop racism. So there's come to be this kind of real pessimism about racism and, and how to overcome it, and the, whether it is possible to overcome it. And if you don't believe in the possibilities of overcoming, of overcoming racism and transforming society then the very character and nature of anti-racism changes. And you can see that in, in the shift that's happened, a shift from demanding material change to demanding representational change, a shift from material change to symbolic gains. I mean, that raises something uh, really interesting in the book and something that's been on my mind as well. This fascinating passage where you talk about uh, the Harold Wilson Labour government in the uh, 1970s, 60s and 70s, introducing several race relations acts that legally outlaw discrimination and at the same time producing a white paper that they don't enact during their parliament but becomes the basis of Margaret Thatcher's attack on the trade unions, the basis for Tony Blair saying that Britain will have the most restrictive laws on trade unions in the Western world uh, through to, you know, the current uh, attacks on trade unions during this wave of strikes that we're currently having. And of course, you know, what's interesting about this current uh, wave of attacks on trade unions and this new wave of austerity of punitive policies uh, being imposed on the working class is that they're being imposed by uh, Britain's first non-white prime minister, uh, of course, Rishi Sunak, who of course is I think possibly the richest man ever to be prime minister. I mean, certainly he is like richer than God. And I don't think you talk explicitly about Sunak in the book, but you do draw this sort of line from that separation of laws against racial discrimination and laws against trade unionism, sort of as a parallel with the impact of McCarthyism in the US and the way that, you know, big political shift wrought apart movements for like racial liberation and movements for class liberation and i wonder if you know in a time where you know the tories having had the first three female prime ministers of i think diminishing returns having also brought on board like gay liberation politics very cynically with the marriage equality uh, act under david cameron uh, and now having you know sunak as prime minister uh, Swella Braverman as Home Secretary and, of course, Priti Patel as Home Secretary, you know, who literally said she would have deported her own parents. I wonder if, you know, if there's a reason why maybe perhaps, you know, people to the left of the Conservative Party have been a bit blindsided by this Tory use of identity politics and if there's anything in a return to class politics or indeed a return to that radical enlightenment universalism that you talked about that might help us to counter this. What I'm really talking about is the is the way that the struggles for political equality and the struggles for economic equality have become detached. If you 
go back to a period that, that, that is very little talked about or insufficiently talked about in American history in terms of the, Ameri- the struggles for um, uh, black struggles in America, the interwar years. What you had here w- was, was the development of what historians now call civil rights unionism, which tried to stitch together the struggles of black people for political rights and of working class, white and black, for economic rights, for, for uh, decent wages, conditions, housing, infrastructure, and so on. And that became separated, detached in the, in the, in, in the post-war years. And when the civil rights movement reasserted itself in, in, in the 50s, it was largely a movement for political rights, with, with the, the economic aspect of it largely given secondary place. Not completely. You've got to remember that the, the march on Washington... 1963, was the march for freedom and jobs. And that Martin Luther King, especially towards the, the, the end of his life, placed great store on the importance of fighting poverty and, and providing working-class struggles. He, he, he was, played a, a role, for example, in the famous um, Memphis sanitation strike in 1967. He was, he was in fact, on his visit to, to, to Memphis that he was assassinated, um, supporting the strike. And while everybody knows that, that quote from Martin Luther King, you know, want to live in a world where uh, which people are judged by the content of their character, not the colour of their skin. I think we should put that with another quote of his, which, which um, I think is very important, where he says, what does it profit a man to sit at an integrated lunch counter if he doesn't earn enough to buy a hamburger and, and, and a cup of coffee? In a sense, that sense that the political and the, and the, and the, the, the economic go together has eroded over the past 40, 50 years. And in part, it's because, you know, we live in a market system that is far more capable or willing to acquiesce to political equality than to economic equality. It's a system built on economic equality. The class system is a system of inequality. So the the arguments I I was making was was, was about the willingness... To, to acquiesce to political equality, but not to economic equality. I mean, we talk a lot about economic inequality, uh, but there are very few policies that anybody would enact that, that would bring anything of that kind about. Well, that was something I, I also wanted to ask. Is that, um, you know, over the last few years, we've seen the kind of rise and fall of Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party and the movement around that, and the democratic socialist movement in the US spearheaded by Bernie Sanders. And it seemed to me that both of those movements were trying to bring back to their respective parties, which I think have been dragged quite a long way to the right by sort of middle class, middle management types who had taken them over, you know, trying to sort of drag them back to an anti-austerity, more class-based politics, and also to bring in something of these sort of political anti-racist movements that you've been talking about uh, and find some some type of fusion between class politics, social justice movements, within what was possible within their parties, which you know I think turned out to be quite limited. The book doesn't go into detail on them. Um, so I just wondered what you thought about those movements, what you thought about that assessment of those movements. Yeah, and whether or not you know they do fit into your thesis at all. The question of class is hugely important in the struggle against political inequality and the struggle against racism. Um, 
the, the issue of whether Jeremy Corbyn or Bernie Sanders and their policies uh, were capable of bringing the two together is an open question. Um, for instance, um, Bernie Sanders' views on immigration, for instance, seems to me problematic. Mm -hmm. um, the questions of, question of immigration is actually pretty key, I think, um, for any movement that wants to stitch together the economic and the political. And I'm not sure there are, there are many on, on the left who, who are able to do that. Part of the problem, I think, is that we tend to think about class almost in racialized terms. So, you know, there's a lot of talk about the white working class, where the whiteness seems to matter more than the class location. So the, the, the problems, it's not that the problems that, of, of what we now call the white working class, I mean, which I, I think is a very unhelpful term, but it's not that they don't face genuine problems, but it, those problems come to the fact that they're working class, not the fact that they're white. But because of the way we post the relationship between class and, and race, we've come to see that the problems they face is more to do with, with their whiteness than to do with their class. And at the same time, we think about minority communities as if they're classless, they kind of belong to classless communities, black community, Muslim community, whatever, as if the, these are communities shaped by their kind of essentialist identity and not riven by class. One of the stories I tell in the book is of the New Orleans sanitation strike of 2020, which kind of expresses all the problems, I think, with the, with the way we look at both class and race. In 2020, uh, May 2020, Sanitation workers in New Orleans came out on strike against uh, poverty wages, the fact that they had inadequate pr protection um, at the time of the COVID pandemic, and the fact that they were refused unionisation. In fact, they formed their own union and came out on strike. Now, they came out on strike three weeks, I think, before the murder of George, George Floyd and the kind of explosion of, of global interest in racism and in Black Lives Matter. Um, that was the year of Black Lives Matter, in a sense. But Black Lives Matter meant something very different to the workers, the sanitation workers, than it did to their employees, because their employees were also black, because it was a black-owned company. Sanitation work in New Orleans had been outsourced by, by the city, and as part of their anti-racist gesture, they, 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 they had allowed a black-owned company then to do the work. But, of course, the fact that it's a black-owned company doesn't make a whit of difference to the black workers they employ. And the notion of black, black, no, black Lives Matter means something very different to the workers on the one side of the picket line and to the employers on the other side even though they're both are black. And during that summer, that summer in which everyone's talking about racism and Black Lives Matter, um, the sanitation workers were effectively ground um, back to work. Um, by September, they were forced back to work, having won almost, any, almost nothing of, of, of their demands. So I think it's, it's a very good... Um, expression of the way that the way we now look at both race and class 
is deeply um, injurious to the needs of, uh, particularly of working class black people, working class minorities. Because, I mean, one, one, one of the things that, that has happened in, in, in recent years is that equality, economic equality, has become reframed as diversity. Now, the, the reason for diversity is that groups such as black people, minorities, women, gays, and so on, have been excluded from mainstream society. Um, and that, that there is an argument that, 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 that they should have a place there, which, which is right. You know, diversity, insofar as it says society, institutions of society should look like that society, is good. But diversity and equality are not synonymous. Um, and the trouble is, diversity has become an alibi for inequality. So that a, a diverse society can be a deeply unequal society. In fact, that's the kind of society we're moving into, something where we celebrate diversity, but, does not, uh, but, but, but doesn't worry about the fact that it's, it's a deeply unequal one. I think it's Walter Ben Michael said, you know, a diverse elite remains an elite. And so it seems to me that we have to completely rethink the way we look at both race and class and rethink this question about restitching the political and the economic. You know, there's no easy answer to, to, to do that. I think it can only come from, in a sense, local struggles over housing, over jobs, over wages, which then become the spark for, 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 for much, much larger struggles. Now, one of the points I make in the book is that you know, we talk about the particular and the universal, you know, and there's a kind of a divide between them. Um, but humans don't live either in the particular or the universal. You know, we all have particular identities. It's the other point I'd, I'd want to make is that there's a difference between identity and identity politics. I'm not, not criticising, you know, identities. I mean, it's, it's, that's just what we have. I'm criticising the use, the, the framing of identities uh, or identities become the, the means by which politics is framed. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we all have our identities. You know, it can be a, a, a woman, a Parisian, uh, FC Barcelona fan, Satyajit Ray film fan, whatever. And these all define who we are, define our relationship to other people, give us a grounding in the world. But at the same time, they only make sense in terms of a much broader sense of what it is, what, what, human beings are and what our needs and aspirations and our identities are. And what links the two is human activity, whether activity in terms of uh, art, culture, or most importantly, art, political activity. Because it is in political activity that we kind of grow out of our narrow identities and start creating more universal forms of organizations of language of, of of identities so you know everything from the haitian revolution to the grunwick strike were examples of that and if politics is the is the relationship between the particular and the universal the the fraying of politics the erosion of the political sphere that we've seen in the past 30 40 years then breaks that link and that's really what what's happened so that on the one hand now we have the kind of politics of identity in, in a kind of narrow way. And on the other hand, you have 
a kind of universalism, which is uh, which is a kind of market globalism. That that's what universalism has become. And there is no way that working class struggles become a means of of linking the the particular to universal. And that it seems to me is 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 what we need to do to to in our local struggles to find the sparks that that, that, that link us to to broader movements, broader. Um, uh, 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 conceptions, both of the kind of society we want and the kind of what it is to be to, to be human in, in 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 a kind of if that doesn't sound too prattish. <laughs> that sounds like a good conclusion. Mm-hmm.